Blog Talk Radio. Brothers and sisters, my entrepreneurial colleagues around the globe, it is zero six hundred hours Eastern, ten hundred Greenwich, and this is Rudder Radio, your guide to thrive in any economy. This is William Eastman, managing partner for Applied Knowledge Labs, a North American business research company, and I'm going to be your host for the next thirty minutes. Now you can join us live several ways. One is you can click the chat now button on our uh, Blog Talk Radio webpage, which is blogtalkradio.com slash the rudder, T-H-E hyphen R-U-T-T-E-R. You can dial in at 347-215-7471. That's 347-215-7471. Of course, there's always my blog, which is also on our Blog Talk Radio site, where we post all of the show notes and supportive materials which is going to be hot this week because we're covering a lot of material. And um, if you're like me, you can only process so much uh, using your ears. You need to use your eyes for some of it. We'll have it there. Or your last option is you can, uh, if you're a tweeter, you can tweet me at W Eastman, E-A-S-T-M-A-N. Okay, let's rock and roll. Lock the cover. And we're going to do a little better job of managing time than we did yesterday. Now that i got a feel for how to cover in-depth information without having audiovisual aids, here we go. Uh, today's show is on the second element um, of business strategies from companies that have become market dominators. And as we talked about on uh, Monday's show, uh, what I did is over the years I looked at the best companies out there, the ones that went from zero to a billion, the ones that have became the market leaders or even the word I like better, market dominators. They own the market because of how they do business and they're big because the fact that they provide unique value to their customers and what were the characteristics that they had in common and just like we built our library of best practices um, that we use for our research and our application tools uh, we found some um, elements and I use the word elements because if you look at that strategy that strategy is like a compound made up of different things and so today's element is element two, and that is attack low-cost, high-margin opportunities. So let me do a quick review of the six elements. If you weren't um, in on yesterday's show or the show on Monday, uh, yesterday on the 7th, we covered do business in a new way, uh, which was about finding ways to be unique and distinctive uh, because that's the only way you can break out. Today's show is attack low-cost, high-margin opportunities which I'll get more in depth. Uh, tomorrow's show on the 9th, on Thursday, it's all about taking monumental risks, and I think I'm going to redefine what calculated risk really looks like because most people believe that entrepreneurs are riverboat gamblers. They are not. They are risk takers, but risk takers with some caution. Uh, Friday's show, which is element four, uh, and that is how do I get exponential returns from the business? 
On Monday the 13th, we'll be back with Thrive on Deals, Partnerships, and Alliances. And then we're going to close out this, uh, this series on Tuesday the 14th on outmanaging the competition. Um, so now let's move ahead and let's take a look at the second element. And what is what do we mean by low cost, high margin, high probability of success, big financial returns, and the issue of what is your value proposition? Okay, like yesterday's analogy, the best way to do this is that I'm going to take three photos. Uh, one photo is not going to suffice. So if I was going to try to describe the, uh, your house or the building that your office is in, I probably can't do it one photograph. So I'm going to put up three photos, and those three photos together should create a mosaic to say, aha, that's what it looks like. So what's photo number one? Photo number one is every one of these organizations um, and their strategies uh, were around becoming or maintaining the position as the lowest cost producer. And please do not get confused with lowest price. Lowest price is a different issue. Uh, if you're not the lowest cost producer, then more than likely you do not have a great deal of flexibility in what you price in the market. Or if you're in a market that is driven by price, which right now in this current economy a lot of us are, then that means that you are really constrained in your margins. So how do I get a greater margin? Well, I think every business out there needs to be focused on becoming the low-cost producer. And next week when we talk about value propositions, I'm going to talk specifically about this because I think there is a universal now value proposition that all companies have to, have to attain, and it's this one. So how do they do that? Well, here's a quick header for you. Um, number one is the, the issue is that they've gone to a digital infrastructure as their business models is that they've seen that going through technology, digital technology, computers, uh, networks, the web, etc., is that they're able to get reduction of waste and reduction of repetition. Um, no longer do we need to have paper everywhere. Obviously, you do need to print paper when you look at something. I typically cannot write an article without doing it on paper to do the edit, and of course, that was how I was raised and trained. But we don't need all the paper that's out there. And the issue of repetition is that how many, in, a, in many, many organizations, even in small ones, what you'll find are pockets or pools of incompetence and pockets of pools of excellence. We have got an individual or a small group of people who are clueless, uh, and it may not be their fault because of how the business operates. And then you've got, you know, could be next door, could be a next, next cubicle. It could be if you're regionally dispersed, it could be in another region. And then you'll find a pocket or pool of excellence. Well, by having a digital infrastructure, you begin to share knowledge and information, and what happens is the pools of incompetence shrink as the pools of excellence grow. And of course, you all, everybody knows what happens when you have a free exchange of ideas, um, whether that's in problem solving, decision making, um, action planning, is that the quality of that greatly improves. So that's one element of that first photo. The second thing that you'd see as you look at this photograph is that they've gone to a networked structure. Instead of the traditional hierarchy in the way that we organize firms, is that we've reduced the layers of management, or as most of you are small business people, we don't build them in there. And a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, stages three and four of growth, fast growth companies, um, and the need to bring in management, uh, we're, we're basically talking about running a company 
with no more than three levels of management, maybe four, but three is, is the optimal. And when you're small, three is all you need. When you get big, the challenge becomes is do you really need four, five, six, or seven? What these companies have done is they've built a network structure where instead of layers of management, um, what they have are these connections between groups of people. And if you have a digital infrastructure, what that allows you to do basically is take out some layers of management because if you know anything about uh, management theory, if you've gone to school and uh, fortunately or unfortunately got an MBA, for example, um, you learn that management's job is coordination and control. Well, you can replace that with the web. But also look at what's going on with whether it's Twitter or Facebook. And the implications of those approaches um, have real consequences for business operations. And again, we'll pick up some of these themes later. But the second element of this photo is that you would see a network structure, not a lot of hierarchy, and but really alive and, and powerful connections. And then the third element of this picture, the third thing that you'd see in this photograph about becoming or maintaining a position as lowest cost producer is that you would find self-managed cost centers. Uh, in other words, um, Cost is tracked and captured accurately. Cost is broken down and cost is contained in the areas that do it. The challenge that I have when I consult and work with uh, small businesses is that when I ask them questions about, for example, who are your most profitable customers, uh, what do you think the answer I get? Uh, they always give me those companies for whom they're making the most revenue. And that is certainly not an indication of who is the most profitable because obviously some of those customers are pain in the backsides. And what happens is, or as my English friends would say, a pain in the arse, and you wind up killing your margin by all the extra time you have to spend with them. And so they, you see lower, you see less layers of management, you see people more in control of what they're doing, and cost is captured and tracked accurately. And if you can do that, cost can be managed. All right, let's take a look at the second photo. So that, let's put that photo up on the wall. We've got that one. What's photo two? Well, they make money from operations. And when I'm talking about making money from operations, they make money from internal operations. And by the way, this second photo is not possible without the first one. And so if we look into this picture, what do you see? What are the features of this side of the building? Well, they run inside functions like outside functions. In other words, all the functions are interdependent and they are networked. And somebody doesn't, if somebody is in an internal department in some sort of administrative role, support role, um, or even in, in sales, which is outward facing, they don't see themselves as a department. They see themselves as basically business owners running this operation. Now, that may present some uh, personnel challenges and leadership challenges as you try to deal with people. But let's face it, the old ideas or concepts about controls just, don't work, just does not work when we go in the future. And again, the beauty of this now for the entrepreneur and the small business and the startup is that what you build today is the legacy tomorrow. And the challenge you have in large companies who are more traditionally built and designed, especially if they've around 20, 30, or 40 years, is that those organizations have all of this control mechanisms put inside that is almost impossible to overcome. 
the inertia of it will drive you crazy. And so that is one element. A second thing that you'll see within this picture is that the concept, therefore, is that they run the company as if there's markets inside the firm. And I came across this term, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, and I was, I was, uh, I'm an amateur economist, and what I mean by an amateur economist is that I recognized that I didn't learn anything about economics when I was in school and took the class, and I decided at this point in my career, probably a good thing to learn, and I came across a paper written in 1935, if my memory serves me. It certainly was in the 1930s by a gentleman by the name of Ira Kirshner. He was a professor at, university, uh, at Columbia University in New York and recently died. And by the way, uh, Mr. Kirshner, for his work, included uh, this one paper called Markets Inside the Firm, won a Nobel Prize in Economics. And what he basically was saying, there are no monopolies, that, that socialism failed as a political experiment, that the only place that socialism in the United States really worked is inside of companies, and that if you look at a big socialized uh, benefit uh, system, a welfare state, uh, so to speak, you'd find it in large corporate America. Just look at the demise of General Motors and ask yourself, how did GM get into the position you're in? Yes, they did make some bad decisions about cars, but fundamentally is that General Motors was a series of monopolies and, and fiefdoms, and you really couldn't get it to operate. There are no uh, monopolies inside these firms. Money flows to the best value. And the example I'll give you, uh, for those of you who are escapees from large corporations, you know what I'm talking about, for you entrepreneurs who have had the good fortune of not working in large corporations, is that how budget is assigned every year is a byproduct of history. And so you basically, you're going to work from some number based upon last year's budget. In these firms, the department heads, right down to work groups, if you've got a first-line supervisor, has no guarantee of any budget. And what they've got to do is that they've got to come in with maybe not a business plan, but a plan for how they're going to run their operation over this period of time, and they've got to go compete for money. So they might wind up with less money than they had last year. They may wind up with a hell of a lot more money uh, last year, or they may find themselves with no money because the department has been outsourced. Because what we're looking at here is that you must run this operation as if it's outside the company. And if you do that, you've got to, you're going to run it very, very differently. Uh, all of you have dealt with those internal departments. Um, again, if you worked in large corporations where you go to them, and you are supposedly the customer, but at the end of the conversation, it's quite it becomes quite apparent that in their mind, they have no customers because they run a monopoly. If you don't like accounting, you cannot go to an accounting firm outside and take your accounting business. The accounting department internal to that firm um, owns the business. In these companies, that is not the case. If that department does not run as if you are the customer and they are running a real-time business, then either the leader of those departments will find themselves out of a job or they'll just outsource the entire operation. The third thing you'll see in the picture is that what they've done is they've taken these cost centers, and that's why I said the first photo had to be first um, around becoming or maintaining positions as lowest cost producer, is that now what they do is they turn cost centers into profit centers. All departments now have external portfolios. We work with a bank in Missouri, and what that bank has done is charged their HR department 
to generate revenue. And so what they're going to do is that they're going to offer training and consulting services to small businesses. And so what happens is that small businesses, when they commit to loans, get turned down. And they can't understand why they get turned down. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'm not going to drill down on those today. But what they're going to do now is that they're going to go out and begin to train these businesses on how to improve their balance sheet, how to improve their management of cash flow, how to improve their overall financial perspective. And by the way, they're going to charge a little bit for that. But if you think about it, I go to a bank for a loan, they turn me down, but say, hey, look, take these training programs. They don't cost a great deal. But what will happen at the end of this is you'll be able to shake the business up. And when you come back to us, then uh, you're going to be in a position to get a loan. And so what happens is you've got an internal department that has been seen as strictly a liability has now become an asset that produces revenue for the firm. So those are the three elements. Run, run inside functions like outside functions, develop the concept economically of markets inside the firm, and then turn cost centers into profit centers. Everybody's got customers, and in their slack time, they ought to be selling it external to the company. And suddenly, what you're doing is you're reducing your cost and you're increasing your margin. So let me take a break here. This is the Rudder Radio. And by the way, I've been asked by a number of people uh, and through both chat but mostly through email, why the Rudder? Well, I, I think I did this in the first show, but let me go back and cover it again. The Rudder is an ancient concept around navigation. And back around the 14th and 15th century, as we uh, it, it, it became apparent that, that the world wasn't flat and it was round, there were really no good charts produced. And so a lot of sailors, uh, a lot of ships would go off into the unknown without any idea of what they were going to find. However, over a period of time, a body of knowledge was developed, a set of charts called rudders that a pilot would have. And if you were the ship captain, and in those days the ship captain had much more of a leadership and administrative role than it is today where they are basically the head navigator, in these, in these days, in the 15th and 16th century, a ship's captain would hire a pilot, and that pilot would have a secret set of charts that he, only he had, and that was his basically his intellectual property, his competitive advantage. And what he would do is that he would use that information to help them get there, but he would never share it. And so when we try to come up with the concept of what, what are we doing here with the radio show and what are we trying to do with our customers, uh, basically we see ourselves as a pilot because we've got a set of rudders that, yeah, you could get if you were to take the time to do the research, but I want to save you that trouble. And so let me also say is that if you're, if you're tired of being tired and if you're tired of stressing out on the economy, if you're tired of being alone and, tra and transforming your dream into reality, we're here. Applied Knowledge Labs can provide you with the tools to grow your company regardless of the economy, and especially important today. Um, contact us. Uh, we'll show you how to aggressively grow your business, and we will share the best practices of growing in a recession. And what I'm going to do is I've instituted a Skype hotline as we, as we are, we practice what we preach, and one of the things that we do is we always look for lower cost and higher margin opportunities. We have created a Skype hotline, and you can reach us at 804-471-1660. That's 804-471-1660. And when you get one of us on the phone, more than likely it will be immediate if we call today, is that I will send you 
a uh, white paper, just a two-page, uh, one-page, two-side document that says, here's your checklist for how do you grow in this bad economy. So anyway, if you want to join us, go to blogtalkradio.com slash the rudder, T-H-E dash R-U-T-T-E-R. You can dial in at 347-215. Where, where the hell is that? I can't memorize everything here. 215, uh, yeah, so you got me here. Here I am rattling along. Um, do, 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 do. <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. Um, 7471, hey, great. Going slow. Okay. All right, so here we go. Let's kind of finish up. Let's take the third photo. We put two photos up, and now we've got a third. And so what is that third photo? Okay, that third photo is around sustainable growth. What does that look like? Well, if you look into this photograph, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see the best. You're going to see marquee customers. You're going to see marquee suppliers. In other words, what they've done is when they went out in the marketplace, they identified who were the best customers. Now, a lot of times the best customer is the most profitable customer, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's that customer that having a relationship with will do a couple things. One, you get the brand association. When people say, who are you dealing with? Because as we talked about a couple weeks ago around trying to sell and why the, uh, in stage two, which is all about cash is king and sell, 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 and the business owner has to be actively involved in the sale process because the challenge you have if you're new, you're asking people to take a risk. Now, why would they take a risk? Why wouldn't they buy from somebody that is existing or they've done business with in the past? It is the owner that helps reduce that risk because they meet, they meet you, and because of that relationship, that's how you get there. And the other thing you want to do is you want to find those customers for whom if somebody says, oh, you work with so-and-so, uh-huh, that gives you the type of credibility that you need. The other thing that happens when you work with marquee customers um, is you learn some things about your products because more than likely your products and services, though ready for prime time, aren't exactly right. And as we talked about in stage one, um, in your pre-stage, when you're trying to get the first products and services out the door so you can sell something, you get you, all you need to do is get it at approximately 80% right. And as we said, do not let uh, perfection hold good enough hostage because if you haven't had a chance to test it in the market, you really don't know so that it, uh, exactly what features, how it should operate, and so that extra 20% that you agonize over will perhaps prevent you from going in business and you'll be broke, you'll be out of money before you get there. So those marquee customers also give the opportunity to really tune what you have to offer. And the same is true with marquee suppliers. With marquee suppliers, what happens here is that not necessarily you can negotiate the best price deal, though that may happen. But what, ha what you can do is that your marquee customers probably have better systems and better infrastructure um, than you have. So what, these, what you can do with these suppliers is begin to kind of offload some of the internal functions to them or not build them because they've got them. And they also bring some credibility to you. A second thing you'll see in this photo is continuous reinvention. And what happens in these organizations is that they manage toward their inflection point, or as we talked about, uh, as we talked about growth cycles in stage six, this reinvention, is that they manage up to and then manage the reinvention process. And what they understand is that what they constantly are trying to do is either get to the next point where they've optimized the business 
or they're there, and now we how do we quickly reinvent the business so we become even more powerful, more competitive. Um, the third thing that you'll see in this picture is that they've mixed organic growth and acquisition. So if you're a small business, at some point, you're, you're doing all this growth yourself. At some point, you're going to find yourself in a position uh, to where you are beginning to dominate the market, and it may be smarter rather than putting a, customer, a competitor out of business um, competitively is to just to buy them out. And when you buy them out, you buy their capacity, you buy your people, but more important, and their inventory, but more importantly, you buy their customer list. And so uh, we're going to handle this in some later shows. We did talk about this uh, briefly about when do you go for money. And this may be the time, the first time that you actually look to bring in angel investors uh, into the company, and that is to get enough money to make the acquisition to buy out the competition. But they, all these companies have done a mix of those. Um, the next thing you'll see in the photograph is that they have multiple product lines and multiple service office, uh, offers because one of the things that you do is that if you only sell one thing, then you bet the farm on one thing. Much like the analogy we made that companies that do not do any marketing and spend all their money on sales and totally burden the sales process to make, to make it happen. You don't want to do that. And tomorrow when we talk about taking monumental lifts, we'll talk about what that really means. All these organizations had multiple product lines and or multiple service offers. All of those directed at more key customers, and it could be the same customer, it could be different customers. And the last thing you would see you would see in this photograph three around sustainable, uh, sustainable growth is that they learn from adjacent markets. Uh, they're not arrogant enough to think that if you're not in my industry, I can't learn from you. That is not true. What they do is that they look at companies that are in similar industries. If you're in retail, you look at other retail. Um, if you are if you are in manufacturing, you look at other manufacturing companies. They don't have to be in your space because there may be lessons to be learned. And so what you do is you just don't try to benchmark yourself against the best in your industry. You try to benchmark yourself against the best in industry, not just yours. And so that's what you would see in photo three. So let me summarize here. Element two is about aggressively attacking low-cost, high-margin, opportunities. Those exist both, both external to the firm in terms of customers and clients and competitors. They also exist inside the firm in terms of how you structure the company, how you work together, how you, um, how you delegate power, how you give off authority. All of those things are required to make this kind of go. And what these three photos represent is a checklist. And so if you want to look at it a different way, I covered 11 best practices in these three photos that, compi that comprise a strategy that attacks low-cost, high-margin opportunities. And then what we'll do is that if you go to our blog site, uh, and that would be, uh, the, you can Google it, and that would be the Rudder blog, and Google it, it'll come up above the fold, or if you go to our blog talk, radio.com slash the Rudder, T-H-E uh, hyphen R-U-T-T-E-R, you'll see my blog site listed there. Just click it. We'll have those show notes, and that checklist will be there for you. And so, tomorrow's show, what are we going to do tomorrow? Well, tomorrow we're going to take the third element, element three, and that is take monumental risk. And what we're going to do is we're going to change the whole perception that you have around this issue of risk-taking, calculated risk versus high risk, and we're going to kind of change that in that these companies all took 
huge risks, but then tactically they mitigated those risks. So to you and I, if we were an outsider, especially if we were not in business, but even if we were their competitors, would look at it and say, they're crazy, what are they doing? Well, we don't realize that after we open the hood or pull the curtain back here on the Wizard of Oz, you begin to see, oh, this is pretty damn bright. Uh, for example, multiple product lines and service offers is just one example of how you don't have to find yourself uh, uh, doubling down on the same bet. And so that's what tomorrow's show is going to be about. All right, so show notes will be available this morning at the Rudder blog on Google. Uh, I'll probably have those up. I'll probably have those up for you sometime early this afternoon, along with yesterday's notes. And there will also be some links to our other corporate blogs um, for more details. And as most of you who are bloggers, you you probably know, it's pretty difficult on a blog to get everything in there. They don't. They work the best when, in fact, uh, they're they're short, succinct, and concise. Okay, so that's today's show. If you were in our chat room, I greatly appreciate you showing up. If you are listening to this as a MP3 download, uh, which will be accessible later today, or you've uh, you've set up your however you're you're handling podcast and you've set this download, uh, I want to thank you for um, being part of what we're doing here. I want you to attack today. Uh, I'm William Eastman, managing partner partner for Applied Knowledge Labs, a North American business research company, and I wish all of you success and prosperity today. Take care.